It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, August 4th, 2017. Now, my schedule is crazy and blown up, so (laughs) next few weeks are going to be just sketchy, sketchy. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word. Mm-hmm to compare and contrast what the most popular and sometimes not so popular uh, pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. It's weird how that works out, isn't it? And over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine being fed to people who are Christians, um, it isn't biblical. It's not Christian doctrine. It's like totally made up stuff. And uh, one of the major doctrines that gets twisted, and we'll be talking about this in more in the weeks ahead, is the doctrine of the kingdom. What is the doctrine of the kingdom? Well, you ask somebody in the NAR, apparently the doctrine of the kingdom is uh, the mandate for us to operate in the miraculous and things like that. And it's like, yeah, no, that has nothing to do at all with the biblical doctrine of the kingdom. Now, what we're going to do today, and uh, you know, my apologies, just the uh, the schedule literally is overloaded. Uh, we have the Pirate Christian Radio Conference next week, and I <laughs> am not I'm not ready yet. But anyway, so what we're going to do today? We're going to do a light episode today, and we're going to do it without any commercial interruption. And this is a lecture that I've played on uh, Fighting for the Faith before. Uh, However, it's been about three years since we've aired this particular lesson. And it's worth reviewing again as we work our way through parts of First and Second Samuel in relation to the biblical doctrine of the kingdom. And, uh, yeah, the uh, kind of the first story of the kingdom, if you would, in Scripture is actually Ruth. I know we've already launched into First Samuel, but, uh, again, I think this will be helpful, and it's good to look at the types and shadows in this just fantastic, fantastic uh, book in the Old Testament. So let's get to it. Uh, here is uh, Roseboro's Ramblings on the Book of Ruth. We are going to get started. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we open up your word, we pray that you would enlighten our minds, cause us to grow in the knowledge of the truth, and then bear fruit in keeping with that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to do something a little bit different. I want to read to you a text from Deuteronomy, and then we're going to look at the book of Ruth. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to spend some time in what I consider to be the best chick flick ever. That's the book of Ruth. There's some fascinating stuff going on here. And you have to understand a little bit of the background before we get into it so that you can get some of the things that go on there. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'll start at verse 22. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all of His ways, and holding fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. This is kind of an important thing. This is a promise that God has made the Israelites, and it's not the only time that He's actually made that promise, which I think is important for us to keep in mind. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. When, If you remember a few weeks back, a while ago, I actually showed you from Google Earth 
what I believe to be the site of Mount Sinai, Jabal al-Laz. And what's fascinating is that in this region of Saudi Arabia, there are a lot of petroglyphs that have this. You can tell what that is. That is a petroglyph that looks like a sandal print. You see it? Your big toe goes right there, and the rest of your foot's there. Yeah? These are like all over this portion of the Saudi wilderness, which I think lends even more credibility that this is the site that we're looking for. And the reason why is because the promise given by God to the people of Israel that wherever the soles of their feet tread, that will be theirs. And so they're leaving in petroglyphs sandal prints, literally all over the Saudi desert. Kind of a fascinating little thing. Now this will then play into the story that we will get to in the book of Ruth. The other thing you have to keep in mind is when we get to Boaz, who is Boaz' mom and dad? Hold the thought, we'll get there. Let's open up to the book of Ruth now. We're in Ruth chapter 1. A lot going on in this passage. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. So Elimelech, his wife Naomi, the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Ah, ha, 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 ha. So they're from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you know, Ephrathah, right? So they're Ephrathites. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Helion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Big deal, by the way. Big deal. She's got nobody, she's got no sons to take care of her. She is a widow. Keep in mind, women technically, there's a lot of regulations about how property is distributed and stuff like this. But keep this in mind, his two sons did something they weren't supposed to do. They married Moabites. There's all kinds of stuff going on in here. When you're reading this, it's like, okay, so there's a famine. The question is, why is there a famine? Probably because Israel is in a sinful cycle, if you would. And if you read the book of Judges, they sin. God punishes them, generally sets them into some kind of bondage to another nation. Then they cry out to God, please deliver us. God then delivers them by sending a judge. The judge comes, and then they're reestablished, and then the whole cycle starts again. And so over and again, you get these little microcosms of how the sin cycle works. Bondage to sin, Savior comes, sets them free, and it all points to Christ. And so here, something's going on. There's a famine in the land of Israel. This is indicative of the fact that God is punishing them for some reason, probably idolatry. And Elimelech's solution is, we're going to go sojourn in Moab. While they're there, his two sons say, hot chicks, like those Moabite chicks, and they marry one. They each marry one. Now, Ruth is a widow, and she, at this, I mean, we're, we're talking poverty like you wouldn't believe at this point. So then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is an important phrase right here, visited his people. Jesus uses a similar phrase when he talks about the fact when he's calling down woes on the people of Israel who don't repent because they didn't recognize the time of God's visitation. It's a big deal, God visiting his people. So God has visited his people, there's now food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? And this is kind of the issue. Elimelech has an inheritance in Bethlehem. He's got land. You know, he's received as, an, as his inheritance and it's passed down to his family. And according to the Mosaic Covenant, what should happen at this point is Naomi technically needs to marry her closest kinsman redeemer, which could be her husband's brother or somebody close to her. And then when she gets pregnant and has a son, he becomes the one who inherits the land. And then he would then marry the daughters, and then they would actually, their first son would be for, would be considered the son of one of the dead, the dead brothers. Does that make sense? So the idea here is, is that in the land of Israel, under the Mosaic covenant, you can literally raise up descendants for the dead. It's an interesting practice and involves kinsmen and redeemers, and it's called Leverite marriage. That's what it's called, Leverite marriage. By way of a kind of a historical side note, fast forward into the 21st century. After 9-11, remember the 9-11 attacks, and nobody was going to forget that. One of the fascinating things that happened in the Jewish community with among those who lost their lives in the 9-11 attack who were Jewish is that the widows, many of the widows who lost their husbands ended up marrying their husband's brother. Leverite marriage was kind of, it, it became a thing for a short amount of time after the 9-11 attacks. Fascinating thing altogether. So in the Mosaic Covenant, you know, you've got a couple and the husband is the one who inherits the land. If he dies, the widow can go and marry his brother and then their first offspring, firstborn son, is considered a direct descendant of the man who died. So at this point, Naomi is basically saying, listen, I ain't going to get married. I ain't going to have any more children. And this is why she's saying, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Because that's technically what's got to happen here in order for this whole inheritance thing to work out. In other words, this is major disconnect going on. So turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So notice the one returns to the land of Moab and their gods. No, you know, not Ruth. No, she says, your God is my God. Confession of faith here. Something has happened in her dealings with Elimelech and her husband and Naomi. And so the one true God is now her God. 
And this is a fascinating story because that marriage should not have taken place. But where this ends up is so comforting for us. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And this is round zero, man. There's something really going on here. The whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. And there should be a note in your Bible. Naomi means pleasant, whereas Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So she sees what she's gone through in her life as, in a sense, some kind of a punishment or a discipline from the Lord. You know, she left, they still had everything, and the reason why they left is so they wouldn't lose everything, and in leaving, they lost everything. They lost the inheritance, they've lost the men who should be inheriting it. She went back full, she's come back totally destitute. How then are they going to live? Without property? Without men, how are they going to live? Well, God is going to step in and do something amazing. And it involves us. That's the best part. So Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, this is kind of an important thing. God had commanded the people of Israel as part of the Mosaic Covenant that when the farmers harvest... They didn't have combines. And, you know, they would gather everything up and then they would take it to the threshing floor to, to separate the wheat from the chaff. The threshing process, you know, they would use the wind to do this because the kernels were heavier than the chaff. But as they were harvesting and putting things in, anything that would fall to the ground, those were called the gleanings. Nobody, if, if you're a farmer, you're not allowed to pick up the gleanings. And here's the reason why. Because that was God's welfare system. The poor, those who were in poverty, they would follow behind those people who were harvesting and anything that fell to the ground, according to the Mosaic Covenant, belonged to them. And that was how they would gather what they needed so that they could survive. And so I find it fascinating that within the Mosaic Covenant itself is a form of a welfare system that nothing like this ever existed in the ancient world. Not like this. Because God cared for even the poor and made laws that made it so that even though they didn't have the ability to plant fields and take care of themselves, that they would still be taken care of. And that's going to play into this. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We all know who he is? All right, I'm going to do a little bit of a search in the New Testament because I don't know if he's in Matthew or if he's in Luke. In Matthew? Okay. Let's take a look. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute in Jericho who hid the spies. And when Joshua sends the armies of Israel in to conquer Jericho, remember the walls fell after they blew the trumpet, she had put a scarlet cord outside of her window, and God literally rescued her. Now, the fall of Jericho typologically is a picture of God's judgment of the whole world. And we can get into that later, but... The idea then is, is that God sends in those who will rescue her and her family who are with her, and they are saved by grace. And Rahab the prostitute, she marries somebody in the camp of Israel. And she's given an inheritance, and she bears a son, and his name is Boaz. And Boaz and Rahab are direct descendants of Jesus. So when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, it's not just Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
Now we've got some of these seedy characters involved in it too. As the story is going to develop, Ruth, who is a Moabitess, she's going to be in the direct line of the Messiah as well. This is all scarlet thread stuff of history. This is following the bloodline of the Messiah. And this shows God's grace and His mercy. In fact, the fact that Jesus' genealogy mentions Rahab is a big deal. It's a big deal because that's not a moral high watermark. It's a moral low mark. But this is showing the work of the gospel and how God is even drawing to himself everybody from every tribe and nation. So we read, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Turns out that Boaz is one of their kinsmen redeemers. This is one of the guys who technically could marry Ruth and raise up children for the deceased brother. So let me go in the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose side I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, And the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? His radar is going off. Ding, 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 ding. Whoa. Right? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, as she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face. Such a great story. He's so kind. He doesn't have to do this. And yet, he has basically offered her protection, made sure that she doesn't feel like she's a stranger, but makes sure that she's getting the water she needs so she doesn't get dehydrated. And, I mean, all of this is a grace. So she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, real quick, we talked about this as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. Where's Jesus right now? Where is he? Jesus is the unborn great, 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 great grandson of Boaz. Boaz has taken the field here right now, not against Goliath, but has taken the field to take for himself a bride. This is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church, which is us. And so there's Jesus right now in Boaz. And we see Jesus' character. We see Jesus' kindness, His love, and His mercy, even to foreigners and Gentiles, reflected in the character of Boaz. That's where Jesus is right now. The scarlet thread through all the Old Testament has come to this point. So then He said, I have found favor. She said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat 
beside the reapers and passed to her toasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Notice bread and wine. There's a form of communion that where people take communion just like this, where they take the bread and they dip it in the wine and then they take it. It's kind of a rarer form of communion. But even here, we're seeing in type and shadow. We're seeing in type and shadow the Lord's Supper. Here's Christ in Boaz. And what is He doing? He's feeding and sustaining the one who would become His wife. He's feeding and He's sustaining her with bread and with wine. So she ate beside the reapers, and He passed to her toasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. She had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned it, and it was about an ephah, or barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So notice she kept the leftovers and brought them home to Naomi. I mean, it tells you something about her character, too. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And you'll notice there's that word, redeemer. This is a theologically charged word. Because has not Christ redeemed us? And this, by the way, the whole idea of a kinsman redeemer, somebody close related to you, typologically points us to Christ's incarnation. Because God appeared in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. We could not be redeemed by the blood of goats or rams or, you know, angels. The angels have blood I don't even know, right? Instead, the one who redeemed us is one of our own. Jesus is God and man in human flesh. So the whole idea of the kinsman redeemer points us to the incarnation, that one of our own, truly God, truly man, bled and died for our sins and redeemed us. It was a human being, for real, who lived a perfectly sinless life and fulfilled all of the law for us and made it possible for us to be redeemed. So this redeemer concept is big. So the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, and lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So a little bit of a plan here. Curl your hair, bath, put on your nice clothes, and pay attention. Don't reveal yourself. Pay attention wherever he lies down. It's going to be cold at night. It's getting to be fall, right? And so uncover his feet so when he 
decides to figure out why his feet are uncovered, there you will be and he'll tell you what to do. A little bit of an interesting plan. So all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and covered his feet and she lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. (laughs) It's like he did not expect this, right? (laughs) He said to her, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She proposed to him? Can you do that? That's a formal offer of marriage, by the way, for real. So he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true, I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So he lay at his feet until the morning but rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and pulled it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So now Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. This is a formal meeting. We need witnesses and everything. So they sat down. So he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And then he said, I will redeem it. Now you're going to notice here, he didn't tell him the whole story. Up to this point, he's failed to mention the whole Naomi thing. And this is a big bit of information. The reason why is because... The Naomi bit changes how his inheritance is going to work. And it actually, in a sense, kind of threatens the inheritance that he's already established for his own children because things get divvied up differently under those circumstances. So Boaz has told him the truth. He just hasn't told him all of the details. So she's selling her property And, you know, if you want it, buy it. If not, I really want it, right? And the guy says, all right, I'll redeem it. Ah, wait, wait, there's more. So then Boaz said, well, yeah, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Oh. (laughs) Because here's how the next awkward conversation goes. (laughs) Honey, I was in town, and you're not going to believe what happened. You know, as I went into town, there was Boaz. I mean, and he kind of like whisked me away, and there was 10 of the elders, and there was this property that was being sold by Naomi. And I decided to buy it, and yeah, um, there's a new wife that I would like to introduce you to. Her name is Ruth. 
oh, and I know that this is going to kind of ha- change how the will works out and how the... Yeah, but... So you can kind of see that would be an awkward conversation, right? But man, Boaz is a hard-working, well-respected man in the community. The son of a prostitute. But he's not the illegitimate son of Rahab. He's the legitimate. And I mean, it just shows you God's grace and mercy. In his own community, not a single mention of his mother's occupation. And he's not looked at as, oh yeah, he's her son. Yeah. His mother's former occupation, though. Yeah, I know. I know. It's former occupation. It's forgiven Rahab, rescued Rahab, saved Rahab. This, it just, it's absolutely fascinating. The more you study the story, it just it takes on so much life. So we have this poor guy here who's been led to think that this is an exciting opportunity for him. And, oh, and by the way, you're going to be married to this other girl. Her name is Ruth. She's a Moabitess, and you've got to perpetuate relatives for the dead, which means he's really not inheriting this property. That's the other thing. The person who's really inheriting this property is going to be the firstborn son of this marriage. He will always and forever be considered a descendant of the deceased husband. So there's kind of an act of charity involved in all of this. You have to purchase it. You have to redeem them. Oh, and by the way, the land ultimately isn't coming to you. It's going to... So then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, Yeah, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. (laughs) Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. Now remember, this is the time of the judges, so this is shortly after the people of Israel come into into the land of Israel, into the land of inheritance. And so this is like the next generation that came in. Redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. The reason for that is what? Wherever the soles of your feet touch, right? That will be your inheritance. So the way you exchange property then, since the sole of your sandal has touched this property, if you're going to give that property away, the sandal goes with it. Yeah. Yeah. So someone's going out of town going like this. <laughs> and on the hot rocks and everything too. So buy it for yourself. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion and to Mahlon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of this, his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh... Make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Janet, you have that look on your face. When a woman lost her husband and her sons, she had nothing. Yeah. She had nothing. She downright. Okay, but now we're saying that Boaz is saying that Naomi is going to sell her land. So did she have land to sell? Yes. But she was poor, so that doesn't, I'm confused. Technically, she has to sell it to a redeemer. So even though she has an asset, she it's not liquid. The, the asset is not liquid. So who was farming? It doesn't say. It doesn't say who. Uh, it doesn't say. So she, she, she inherited the land from her husband and her sons, but she really couldn't do anything with it because she had. It had to go. To it had to go to a redeemer. Yeah. That's that's like if you had gold and your grandma. And you can't get for it because you're still alive, like yours, you are not. You won't get it for another time. Does that have anything to do with how they keep the land if they lost the land to someone and they sold it and still went back to their land? Yes. In the year of Jubilee, okay, in the land of Israel and the Mosaic Covenant, there were Sabbaths, there were Sabbath years. So you'd plant and harvest for six years, and on the seventh year, the, the Sabbath year, it's actually technically called the Shemitah, you couldn't plant, and you couldn't harvest, and the poor can actually live off of whatever grew on your property during that year. But God promised that He would cause their crops to yield a huge yield in the year before the Sabbath year, so that they would still be eating what was left over from the harvest of the previous year, by the time they harvested the year after. This is what God promised them. You have seven Shemitah years. So at the 50th year, it's the year of Jubilee. All debts are canceled, and all property that's been lost has to be restored to the original people. Now, one of the reasons why God says that He punishes the people of Israel in the book of Jeremiah and they go into exile in Babylon, is specifically, God names this, because they did not follow the Mosaic Covenant commands regarding these Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee. That actually factored into the amount of years that Israel spent in captivity in Babylon. That's kind of a fascinating little historical side note. You know, coming back to your, your question is, yet... This doesn't have to do with that particularly, but that, that's part of the rules of the Mosaic Covenant regarding the releasing. So anything that's lost, it's technically, it can be sold, but in the year of Jubilee, it's supposed to be restored. That was great for the people who lost everything, but the people who have everything, not so much. Yeah. I don't understand why Boaz, was he a redeemer? Yes. Why did he kind of play it cool and let someone else? Well, he had to. Okay, the way it worked out is the closest Redeemer had first right of refusal. He was next in line. So he technically was required by the law to give that other Redeemer who was a closer relative first crack at it. And he did. He technically fulfilled his responsibility, but he kind of plays the cards one at a time rather than lays them all out at once. Because he wanted Ruth. Of course he did. Stephen? Plains, um, whenever um, in the book of Acts, the apostles first went to um, people, the Israelites, and then God revealed that they could also go to the Gentiles as well. That's a good question. In some sense, you, this plays into that. Well, because... Um, you have um, who is the, oh, uh, Boaz, who's the son of a Jerichoite or whatever from that land of Jericho. So he's actually not complete. Well, she was redeemed as well. Right. So in the first crack was, okay, look, Israel, you had the ability to redeem this land. and then Here's the idea, is that over and again, you go back to the blessing of Abraham. 
All nations of the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. All nations. And God has chosen the people of Israel for this redemptive plan. God is going to be in human flesh as a descendant of these people. And then He's going to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant, live a perfectly sinless and righteous life, and die a death for the sins of the whole world. And then the Gospel is to go out to all nations. And so here we're seeing, even in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that God is grafting into even the Messiah's lineage people who technically should be outside, not inside. I mean, there wasn't a drop of Jewish blood in Rahab. Not one ounce of it. And yet she's grafted in. Boaz, he's half Jew, half Jerichoite, like you said. And he now marries a full Moabite. And at this point, their son, Obed, he's a quarter Jewish. A quarter. And yet he's, Obed's the grandfather of David. And this is all typologically picturing and showing for us God's intent all along is to save for Himself a people out of every tribe, every language, every nation. Before the throne of God, the great multitude that cannot be counted, every tribe is representative. Every language, every people will be there. Yeah. I would add one nuance. If Abraham was released, you know, they were the smallest people, people group, and God took the smallest people group and made them the largest, least of the least. And then whenever the New Testament was given to us, the people that God, that were most receptive to it, were the prostitutes, thieves, tax collectors, were the, took the least of us and saved us. Yeah. And this is showing that God is the one who saved. Did Naomi save herself? No. Did Ruth save herself? No. It was all as a grace, as a mercy. Did she deserve it? No, she didn't. But she was given it by grace, the same way we are. There's so much going on here, so much that is very beneficial for us to consider, the love and the mercy of God. And kind of by way of contrast then, again, I told you this was kind of like the ultimate chick flick. It's like my favorite chick flick. Is there any shadowing of the fact that she was a Moabite? In what sense? They sacrificed the Christian. The Moabites become idolaters. And where do the Moabites come from, by the way? Do you remember? All right. Remember our story back after the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his daughters, they survive. They get their father drunk. And one of them gets impregnated by her father while he's drunk and gives birth to a son, and his name is Moab, which means from the father. There's like all kinds of problems here. Because of their idolatry, they end up warring with Israel. Yeah. Kind of weird that the line of Lot gets redeemed through um, Ruth instead of being redeemed through the the. the uh, Father's lineage, sort of like whenever Jesus was, when Jesus came through Mary, you know, and it, it was all the hand of God that Mary got impregnated. So it's redemption through the maternal line. And what's the promise then? What's the promise in Genesis 3? The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, which is a prophecy of the virgin birth, because women don't have the ability to give birth like that. And yet the very prophecy there is important. Let me read to you from Ephesians. Chapter 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Do not be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ultimately, the story of Ruth and Boaz shows us how a husband sanctifies and redeems his beloved, his wife. Because she comes in in disgrace. She comes in in poverty. She comes in with nothing. And he gives her everything. It's a picture of how Christ has redeemed the church. And so we as the church, we are Christ's beloved. We are the bride of Christ. That that's what the church is. And so the story of Ruth and Boaz plays that out beautifully. And we even see the character of Christ in the loving and kindness and the sacrificial love that Boaz has for Ruth. And this is then picked up in the reality, which is Christ's love for his church. He has sanctified his church, his bride. He has cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, which is baptism, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. We were in sin, naked, poor, pitiable, blind. Christ has clothed us with his robes of righteousness, has enriched us with the riches of his table, has fed us with his bread and wine, and he is the one who has redeemed us. And the story of Ruth and Boaz plays out perfectly that love that Christ has for his bride, his church. All right, we'll pick this up next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ by Carrie's death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.